This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, and we are getting saucy on the podcast today. We are talking about anonymous sources. Are you fed up with them in British politics? Is there a role for them in political reporting, or is it just an opportunity for people to spout off any old nonsense with no consequences? Sir Craig Oliver, former Director of Communications at Number 10, used to was quite seen at the BBC before that. Uh, he thinks they've gone too far, that we need to curb their use. We'll also hear from Lucy Fisher, Times Radio's chief political commentator on uh, the use of sources for journalists. And David Herzenhorn, an American journalist, now works for Politico in Brussels. He can tell us how the Americans are much stricter about the use of sourcing. That's coming up on the podcast in just a moment. First, as ever, it's our columnist panel. No Rachel Sylvester this week, so we're joined by Libby Paris and Carol Lewis. So, uh, let's talk about spouses working in uh, parliamentary offices. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's probably the smallest of the details of the David Warburton story. Uh, this MP who's been accused of sexual harassment, taking drugs, taking a loan from a Russian, uh, which is now uh, paid back. Um, uh, but he also employs his wife, Harriet, overseeing HR matters, which makes it slightly difficult if someone wants to make a complaint about the boss because... The boss is married to the person you have to make a complaint to. Uh, this morning, uh, the Wales Secretary, Simon Hart, defended the idea of employing uh, spouses. He said it was insulting to question MPs' decisions and that it offered taxpayers... Uh, but this was his defence. If anything, the taxpayer gets more bang for their buck. Which is an interesting turn of phrase, if nothing else. <laughs> um, uh, it said that but one in eight MPs currently employs a family member or partner using taxpayers' money, you're only allowed to do it if you were elected before June 2017, for whatever reason. Uh, Carol, what do you make of this? Well, I think we are right to question it. These aren't family businesses. This is taxpayers' money. So, you know, there's, there's lots of different questions here. Are these people actually interviewed and shown to be the right person for the job, or are they just given it um, because they're a family member? what are the processes if you do want to complain about the MP? In it, it's, the assumption in this case is the wife would have blocked the complaint. She actually might not have. She might have empathised. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Uh, but we do need to have some standards there and some um, protocols. I mean, 
I really question whether we do get bang for our buck if we if these jobs are just given to people. We don't know if they're suitable for those roles or they're just being given them. And I suppose that's the point, isn't it, Libby? Is that for every example of you know a, a spouse up all night sitting at the kitchen table on a Sunday morning going through the diary, there might also be a case of a spouse being paid by the taxpayer not doing any work. And actually, at least if you weren't directly related to the person at working for you, then you might um, be more confident they were doing their work. Yes, of course, you need a third-party interview um, system and an examination of whether the spouse or child is actually good enough. And the business about the HR absolutely astounds me because, uh, I mean, my husband worked for That's Life at a time when uh, Desmond Wilcox was the boss of the department and Esther Ranson was basically running the researchers. And if any of them had had a complaint about Esther and I'm not saying they did, and I'm not saying they didn't, they would have had to go to Desmond. And this was just impossible. You know, these people were married. And I I think uh, the the HR thing sounds absolutely atrocious. But just in general, there should always be some kind of third-party, you know, dispassionate examination of whether this spouse or child is actually suitable for the job. It's public money. You can't treat it like a family grocery. Um, and what what about the sort of the general um, uh, the question over uh, MPs' expenses, MPs' pay, office costs? I mean, they all get lumped in with expenses, but actually they are they are separate. Is there is there a case? Do you think, Libby? For you know, we've had a sort of second jobs as well last year with the Owen Patterson stuff. Should we pay MPs more money? I think that probably we should. I think one of the difficulties has been that all this ridiculous allowances and expenses and sort of special elephant's foot waste paper baskets for your second home, uh, it, it all happened because I believe under Mrs Thatcher there was a great unwillingness to have MPs paid more. You know, it sort of it, it looked bad. But all this stuff, all this kind of weird sideways stuff looks a great deal worse. And I think they should be paid a decent salary and absolutely expected to spend their time working as MPs for that decent salary, not necessarily out in the Virgin Islands being lawyers or whatever. <laughs> um, we, we need some form of logic to be applied to this system. And I do I do quite enjoy the way that the British system always works on, oh, well, let's do a bit of this and a bit of that and maybe a slight little tweak of this and that. We don't have a written constitution. God bless us. But there comes a time you have to say, look, actually, this is a mess. Let's sort it out. Let's be professional. Let's have proper professional politicians qualified. What do you think, Carol? Should we should think, we pay MPs more? I think. What do they earn at the moment? One hundred and thirty. No, no, it's about eighty-five. Yeah. MPs. It's, more, 80 it's a bit more if they. There goes. If they're ministers. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I think. I mean, there's two two sides to it, isn't there? A lot a lot of people listening in will think eighty-five thousand is a lot of a lot of money, but on the other hand, it's a lot less than you'd earn in the city, but many of them would work. Um, so you're seeing rich people come into politics so they can sustain the lifestyles that they want and do politics, people like Rishi. Yeah. Um, and they're not necessarily the best people to be politicians. They're not necessarily in touch with the, the, the majority of the electorate. Yeah, no, I've seen quite a lot of debate about mm. that. In fact, um, uh, Claire Fogers has used a column today to say that Rishi Sunak is too rich to be Prime Minister. Yes. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> I hate that. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> I, I'm not sure because unless you're going to... You know, because... If you're saying they can only be Prime Minister if they know what it's like to be poor, then what about the people who aren't poor, who will also be a vote No, again? I agree, but they think, I think, is, it, is their wealth obscuring their policies? It's more about 
are they able to make yeah. policies that actually benefit the majority of people regardless of their wealth? Yeah. If their wealth is starting to interfere with the policies that they make, which is the accusation against Rishi in his spring statement, then we've got a problem. Is there any... I mean, I suppose the thing is, is he... Is he making that judgment call, the policy call, on this is how much help I can give and no more because his wife is the daughter of a billionaire or because he's the Chancellor's Sheck who's committed to balancing the books and he says there's no more money? And does Keir Starmer, who is a former barrister, former director of public prosecutions, currently earns, I think, it's about 120,000, 130,000 as leader of the opposition, is he, does that make him mathematically that much more in touch than someone who's on the minimum wage? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm not sure it's, it's that clear, is it? I mean, I, I, obviously, property is my stick um, day to day. Rishi has four homes. I often wonder, with lots of ministers having second homes, why, why that is a reason we haven't done more about the yeah. second home problem, for instance. So I think that we do deserve some sort of reassurance that they are in touch you know, that they can put aside their personal lives when they make policy. Yeah, 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 and separating the two. In fact, mm. let's, let's um, slightly stick it with your, your, your area of expertise, Carol, the planning system. Okay. Uh, there's talk uh, that the Prime Minister is uh, planning to tear up his uh, national planning policy framework because he's worried about MPs aren't happy, in particular there's a knock-on impact on uh, um, the plan to treble the number of onshore wind turbines and go for nuclear instead. Why, why do we, we have, just seem to have a problem in this country with building anything? Oh, we do have a real problem. <laughs> we really are a nation of NIMBYs. Um, there is a backlash against it now, though. We are seeing younger people get more involved in planning. We have the YIMBYs, yes, in my backyard. Uh, we've got people in their 20s and 30s who can't get on the property ladder who are really getting fed up of people with houses blocking the building of new houses. We've got a similar problem with the energy. Um, I was... This weekend I was in Dunwich on the East Coast and there's posters in everybody's window, no to Sizewell C. Um, there's a lot of opposition to having anything in your backyard, whether it's a house, a nuclear power station or a wind turbine. And I think, you know, OK, Boris has now said we'll have fewer onshore wind turbines, we'll stick them all out at sea. But it is a problem we're going to have to grapple with. Um, we are going to need to do something. We all have seen the need to be more independent with our energy. Um, it's not a long-term fix. It's going to take at least 10 years to get a nuclear yeah. power station built. I mean, it's not easy. The funding, and they're talking about 20% um, taxpayers' money. in the. I mean, it's, it's very, very complicated. We could do some simpler things, which aren't being talked about. Yeah. Yeah, we could, we could cut bureaucracy. I mean, energy, community energy schemes, they're great. It's, that's where you... You, you have a block of flats, say social housing, you have a block of flats and you put um, solar panels on the top. Now, you think that could then feed into the flats below yeah, yeah, and yeah. cut their energy bills, but it can't because of bureaucracy. You're not allowed to do that. You've got to send it to the national grid. You no longer get feed-in tariffs. So the people in the block don't benefit at all. Uh, so there's lots of little things we could do perhaps a bit quicker. And actually, and actually it goes back... Well, I think we've talked about this before, Libby. It's becoming one of my little hobby horses politicians could take a lead and make the case for something and try to change public opinion. They could, yes. I mean, I, I, can I just add the fact that I do actually live on the East Coast? Ah. Uh, I don't just visit it. I, I, can, I can throw a stone at Sizewell Power Station. Well, I'd have to be really good at stone throwing. But I was here. I'm not sure that's a, a safe child. thing to do. I'm not sure you should go throwing <laughs> stones at nuclear power stations. 
I was here when Sizewell A was being built as a small child. We moved back to Suffolk when Sizewell B was being built. And now Sizewell C is, is you know, subject of all these posters and so on. But there's a lot of a, a lot of things which are not are not talked about properly. Um, one of them, which did turn up, thank goodness, in the Times the other day in the letters, is connectivity. All these offshore wind farms, which all people think, oh, that's a great, you know, that that's it. They're offshore where they're not in our way. Uh, but the Scottish power has got to get its wind power ashore uh, in Suffolk, um, it says, through acres of SSSI and protected landscapes in order to save itself the cost of going to a brownfield site where there's already building, like the Isle of Grain or Bradwell Power Station. So there's going to be a great deal of carving up of some beautiful countryside, which a lot of people value, whether they live here or whether they visit it. You know, that happens. So planning does need to be taken you know, at a sane level and right up from the top and not, not on a kind of nimby cringe level like the Prime Minister's thing at the moment of, oh, we'll have more nuclear power stations so you won't have to look at the big windmills. You know, it, it, it needs an over, an, a proper sort of oversight and over planning. You know, I, I don't want to sound like sort of Robert Moses at New York, but somebody needs to take a grip on it all and nobody ever does because there's always a little interest group which gets in the way. Uh, just finally, Lee, because I really enjoyed it today, I want to talk about your column today about trigger warnings. <laughs> And uh, these sort of, all you know, this, this, uh, I have to say, whenever, if we're watching a box set and you get it on every single episode uh, and one episode will say this, this uh, programme contains strong language. And then the next mm. one will say this programme contains strong language, some violence and some mm. sexual content. You think, oh, excellent. This is going to be a good one. Uh, <laughs> but you think, you think, uh, you think trigger warnings on this sort of thing have gone too far. Well, there's, there's two things. There's content warnings, which is, you know, for sort of consumer protection. You know, yeah. I don't want my children to see this. I don't want to see this. It'll upset me. But it's gone much further. It's gone into this sort of psychiatric uh, word of trigger warnings um, where students, uh, you know, medical students, archaeological students are told, you know, you may have to look at a corpse here. You don't have to. You can leave if you like. And I, the central thing I wanted to say is that we need to get rid of this wider presumption that nobody should have to contemplate anything distressing in case they get upset set or reminded of something sad in their own life. I mean, look at the news. Emotional robustness is actually essential. Uh, it's absolutely without without nurturing that in everybody. You, you, Nobody can engage in the news, for heaven's sake. I mean, today's news is horrendous, but we have to contemplate it. We have to look at it. We have to think about it, decide how what we can do about it, if anything. Um, we, we need that emotional robustness, and that is something which is being sort of discounted with this endless warning that we might be upset or that students might be triggered by something. And in my experience, people who've really had a hideous experience, you know, abuse Use, bereavement of any kind, disaster, whatever, they are actually the most robust. Uh, it's, they are the least self-pitying because they've actually had to go through it. So I, I just really wanted to say all this, and there's one or two people snarking at me about it, but I say, no, no more trigger warnings, no more content warnings even. Just put an X on if the kids shouldn't see it, and that's it. What do you think, Hal? I think, I, think I, I read the column and I totally agreed with that. I thought we do need to build resilience and the way we build resilience is via you know, theatre, books, films, TV, so on. Um, I did read below the line, um, most people were in favour. There were a couple of people who said they suffered from PTSD and that the, the warnings had helped them. So I wondered if there was a, a less... A sort of more subtle way we could do it, maybe press the red button to find out the trigger warning, ask at the booking office or something, yeah. but not shove it in our faces because there are two reactions. One is yours, oh, great. The other is, oh, my God, should I be worried about that? I'm not. Is there something wrong with me? Yeah. 
And, and, it, and, and I suppose the point that you're making, um, Libby, about sort of emotional robustness, I think this is, I always think that, you know, coming around to when people get very cross, well, I'm, I need to be included in this and why am I not included? You know, when you go up to, 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 to Mother's Day, my mother died when I was three. But I don't go around saying, mm. well, I don't want to see any adverts for Mother's Day. Uh, and other people, you know, have lost parents. Everyone knows that's part of, you know, the upsetting thing is is losing a parent, not an advert for an event that you know that other people exactly, enjoy. And it's I all know. part of life, and um, we need to learn that it's all part of life. Yeah. And when, when the absolutely worst thing happened to me and I, I lost a son, I can remember thinking to myself, I do not want to be one of these people in our northern extended families, you know, who say almost proudly, oh, and from that day to this, she could never look at a pineapple again, you know. She could never hear... <laughs> she could never hear custard creams mentioned you know and I thought I could feel it coming on in myself there's little things I don't want to think about again little details but actually sod it I will Carol Lewis and Libby Purvis there and of course you can read them in the Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box up next oh saucy However, they come at a cost because sometimes it can make it hard for readers to really analyse the meaning of the quotes and the master intentions of the person who gave them. So, I've been looking back over the political news for the last seven days in British papers. And I've compiled, if you want to have a look at the full chart, I've, I've tweeted it at Matt Shorty. A source, this is my favourite, a source, just literally saying a source with no attributions to who they are. A source was used in uh, newspapers in the last seven days 444 times. I should point out, there's a bit more like royal stories and some sports stories and things crop up in that. But still, a source, 444 times, followed by 
a government source 138 times, sources close to 126 times, one source, which I particularly enjoy, 77, then Whitehall source, 54, Western officials, that's very good, 36, <laughs> they not even narrow down the country, defence source, 30, senior government source, that's much more important, uh, 28, according to sources, 24, Cabinet source mentioned 19 times. 11 mentions of number 10 source, security source and government insider. Home office source, nine times. Nine times also for Downing Street source. Treasury source, seven. Labour source, seven. Whitehall insider, six. Foreign office source, five. Westminster source, three. Conservative source, two. Tory source, one. One mention of an SNP source. One mention of a parliamentary source. And I did a search for Lib Dem source. No mentions. In a moment, we're going to hear from uh, Sir Craig Oliver, Director of Communications in Downing Street under David Cameron. He's really not happy with the use of sources. Uh, we'll find out why in a moment. But first, let's hear from Times Radio's very own chief political commentator, Lucy Fisher. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. So, first of all, let's uh, make the case for the use of off-the-record sources. Well, it's an uncomfortable defence to make, and I have to admit I am rather horrified by the ridiculous number uh, of sources, uh, the incidents used in the past seven days in, in British newspapers. But as a reporter in Westminster, a lot of the time I am speaking to people who, for various valid reasons, cannot be named on record. That might be because they're an official, they don't have a mandate to speak, it's not part of their job. Their job could be at risk if they were found out to be talking to the press, but there are matters of public interest that they think are important to get to, across, equally perhaps officials who just want a good gossip. There are special advisers who may be freelancing beyond what their minister has permitted them to say. It may be ministers themselves who want to give you the true impression of a policy tension at the heart of government, but know that they'll get in trouble with Downing Street if they speak on record. So there's lots of reasons why people can't speak freely. And uh, as a journalist, I always want to serve the listener, the viewer, the reader by giving as much information as possible. Often you just have to kind of leave it at saying a government source because you don't want to risk identifying people. Um, and you obviously don't want your sources to stop talking to you if they think you're taking liberties or risking them being unmasked. And just to sort of take us through the, the sort of the grading of these. So the, I, I'll tell you what I think, and then you can, you can tell me if I'm wrong. Parliamentary sources, basically somebody who works in Parliament, you know, maybe around Correct. the Speaker or something like that. Uh, then you've got uh, Whitehall source. I would say that that is probably an official, yes. a civil servant. Good, we agree on that. Uh, a Downing Street source is unforgivable because that could be either number 10 or number 11. Uh, and you should probably say which it is because... I think so. I'd say most people, and certainly myself, I, I would, if I said Downing Street source, I would be talking about someone in number 10. Okay, it, I would say sort of treasury source or some, someone near to the Chancellor if I was getting it num the number 11 source. And one of the things that we... Uh, which I didn't do when I did the search. So the 123rd in this league table was source close to. Fr lots of people have pointed out on Twitter, friends of, uh, which I did not do a search of, but that is also very popular. Friends of ex-cabinet minister. As a general rule, that's the minister, isn't it? I wouldn't go that far. It's, <laughs> it, it could be the minister, it could be their special advisor, it could be their parliamentary private secretary, that's a, a junior MP who's basically the bag carrier. It could be another source in politics who you know genuinely is a good friend of that person and has been essentially authorised to speak on their behalf. 
sometimes you do get called up by angry special advisors saying, why have you said friend of X? You know, I'm the only person who's qualified to, you know, be quoted as that. So there is wrangling sometimes when you do cite sources close to a minister and, and, and certain people don't, don't want to sort of uh, allow you to do that. I had exactly that case once. I wrote a story saying uh, Vince Cable wanted to be Home Secretary. And I think I said a source close to or maybe friends of. And the special advisor phoned me up and said, where, where have you got, you haven't spoken to Vince. Where's this come from? Uh, you can't, you know, I'm the only person who, and I had to point out to this person, it was from them, uh, from a drinks party that week where they'd quite openly told me the, the one job he's got his eye on. So, yeah, uh, even it, sometimes sources don't even realise that they are indeed the source. I, th- I think another thing to add is that, it, amazingly, perhaps, there is not any consensus on what terms like off the record or on yeah, background yeah. mean. And I think it suits journalists sometimes to have some leeway because, frankly, if you have uh, a Watergate-style s- scandal on your hands, it, it's useful to have a little bit of leeway in, in how you can use something. If you can you know, use the quotes without attributing them. Um, but I think it does surprise some people, particularly new MPs to politics. They sometimes, you know, use these terms without really understanding them or clarifying them. But I do, as a rule, try to make clear with people how I'm going to use their quotes and what, what I'm proposing. Uh, well, we'll talk more about exactly what on and off the record means in, uh, in a moment, because we're going to hear from an American journalist. They have much more strict, you know, strict uh, rules of this. Let's now hear, though, from Sir Craig Oliver. He was Director of Communications in Downing Street under David Cameron. And I caught up with him and asked him why he thought the use of anonymous sources had increased and why he thinks that's bad for politics. Well, I started life as a, as a journalist um, and edited some TV news programmes and then I went into Downing Street. And so obviously I have a particular interest in you know, how journalism works and how it operates. And one thing I've just noticed over the years is increasingly there's a growth in stories where the source of them is often not revealed. And not just not revealed in terms of their name, but in terms of their seniority or what their locus is or help you understand whether they have an agenda or not. And increasingly, I think that's a problem because I think you can often have a lot of stories where it's not really that necessary that the source remains anonymous, but it does create a kind of gossipy uh, dynamic. Um, And I think that that's a real problem, actually. Sometimes you can read Sunday newspapers that have huge swathes of stories without actually knowing the name of a single source. And you get uh, a Whitehall source, a Westminster source, a Downing Street source, a Number 10 source, a source close to the Prime Minister. Are, Are you clear what any of those different things mean? Well, I I think I am. And I think the likes of you and I, who are sort of very much Westminster insiders, there's a danger sometimes that we sort of know that a friend of Rishi Sunak actually probably means Rishi Sunak or somebody very, very close to him speaking on his behalf. Um, Or, you know, we, we know the code. We know that if you say a Downing Street source, why are they saying Downing Street? Do they mean number 10 Downing Street or do they mean number 11 Downing Street um, in terms of Treasury, that kind of thing? So we have the ability to look at that and navigate it and use the various or understand the various tricks that um, journalists use. But I think often people reading it, they'd probably be pretty lost and not know what's going on. And I suppose it, sometimes you, you need to know where the 
source is coming from, where the quote is coming from, to know what the angle is on it, why they might be saying that, why they might be saying that and not putting their name to it? Yeah, so look, I want to be absolutely clear. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have anonymous uh, sources in journalism. I'm just saying that I think that they should be used not as liberally as they are at the moment. And I think what's interesting, you know, there are often stories where somebody's a whistleblower or that they might be in danger or their job might be in danger and that they're revealing a piece of information that is really important is out there. And it's really important that people know that and understand that. Those people should absolutely be anonymous. And I don't have a problem with that. I think particularly in political journalism in the UK at the moment, it's almost as if nobody will talk without being anonymous. And I think that what you see quite often is that 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 people who've got an agenda or an issue and or don't actually have to face up to difficult questioning about why they're saying a certain thing or what is their agenda on that sort of thing are just put into stories carte blanche. And the result of that, I think, is that quite often stuff that people wouldn't happily and openly say uh, out loud is just sort of snuck in and it's used to destabilize and cause issues so a very good example of this from me being in Downing Street was that there was a book written about David Cameron and the story that was pushed very very hard on the publication of that book was a claim that somebody that David Cameron had had sexual relations with a pig um, when he was younger now I believe very strongly that that is absolute nonsense. That the person who said it was not revealed. And actually, I think if you read quite deeply into the book, the person was saying they'd heard it from someone else. So not only were they not a direct source, they were anonymous, they'd heard it from another person, and yet it was put in a book and then used as a journalistic story and pushed out there. And that has got to be wrong. Um, I think there was a recent example of it with Carrie Johnson um, in another book about um, Downing Street, another specific book about her that was rushed, extracts from it were rushed out early to suggest all sorts of things about her that, again, were only based on anonymous sources and clearly people who had an agenda. Now, I don't know if they were right or wrong, but when I was reading that, I just thought, look, we've got to be able to do better than this. And we've also, frankly, got to be fairer than this in terms of dealing with people whose reputations can be trashed um, in this way without the person who's making the accusations being public. Has there ever been a time when you, when it's been useful or when you were in Number 10 work with David Cameron, it was useful for you to be an anonymous source? Yeah, I think I've got to be honest about this kind of thing. Occasionally, I would let things be known on background. And occasionally I would say, look, I'm happy with you doing it on these terms or the other. So I was, I, look, I've got to be honest, you know, occasionally I used the system myself. I think looking back and looking with somebody who's standing back, I just think it's just going too far now. It has gone too far. I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Matt? I mean, you, you're, you're a, you were a political correspondent. Do I feel that often I'm reading stories and saying, you know, I've no idea, you know, who, what is going on here. Why is this person not actually, why shouldn't they say this on the record? In the United States, journalism is very different. You have to justify to a senior editorial figure the use of an anonymous source at all. Um, it seems to me we could be doing with a bit more of that in, in the UK. Yeah, I think, and I've, I've definitely seen a sort of rise of things like a senior source, 
or a source tells me. And it's like, no attempt to um, yeah. explain. What does that even mean? I mean, you know, and actually, I think if you say one cabinet minister said, and what, you, what you're therefore doing is getting a bit of an insight into the private thoughts of a cabinet minister. They can't say it in public because they'd probably get the sack, but it's a good idea. You know, it's sometimes it's good to know what cabinet ministers are thinking. But if it's just a source, um, then, you know, you don't know. And I also think social media plays a big part as well. Very, very senior political journalists tweeting, a source tells me, I don't know, they've almost got the 54 letters to trigger a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson. He said, well, have you checked that out? Are, you know, in doing that, you're then sort of being used in some way to sort of further the one idea that this is the direction of travel because then that might have an influence on other people. And so the the source, you need to know who the source, where the source is coming yeah. from for the influence and, they're having. And I, and I think quite often you need to have more than one source so in many stories, it's, I think it's very important, you know, to double source it, to check that this isn't just an inaccurate thing or that the person may have got it wrong. And I also think that, you know, it's up to incumbent on political journalists to say, look, am I just contributing to the sort of like a general swell of poison or basically ganging up on a particular person and having a go at them and allowing somebody to do that under the cloak of anonymity? Do I feel comfortable in that? Is that the kind of journalism I actually want to do? Or would it be better? And I know it's easy to sound a bit pious and about these things, but I think that one of the things that you see when you are a journalist who then goes behind the scenes is you often see that, that the problems that this causes for people personally, the impact it has on them personally, and sometimes they just need to be, that's just tough. You know, there is the reality of a situation and you've done something wrong or there's a problem here. And sometimes it is, well, should that person be exposed to somebody who's not even willing to stand up and be honest about their motives or their agenda or whatever? Um, and would our political life and would our debate debate be better and less frankly gossipy and he said she said if we just had a bit more um stronger view of how sourcing is done i have to say i fear that i'm on a lonely <laughs> I suspect it's, it's not very likely that anybody um joins in on this but i do think it's a problem and i do think it's you know it's something that journalism should confront more and politics by the way it's not just journalists fault it takes two to tango um people who want to go out there and be anonymous and spread you know poison and things that are not true um you know a lot of them are on the political side too it's not just the fault of journalists we are talking sources and the use of anonymous sources in political reporting. I'm still joined by Lucy Fisher, Times Radio's chief political commentator. She's still in the studio with me. Let's go live now to David Herzenhorn. He's chief Brussels correspondent at Politico and a former Washington correspondent of the New York Times. Morning, David. Good morning. So explain, we've been, we've been covering the, the, the strange language of sourcing and anonymous sourcing in the UK, which basically gets used with gay abandon, most uh, newspapers. For an American journalist, what are the rules on using anonymous sources? Okay, well, let's be clear. There are no more rules than there are in the UK or in Brussels in the EU. These are conventions. And one thing I want to add to your conversation is, you know, the sourcing in, a, in a, any given article or report is only one piece of the pie, right? You have a byline. You have the institutional reputation of the outlet that is reporting that news. And all these things have to be taken together. So bashing and trashing anonymous sources is like slamming a chef for using sugar or salt. 
it's a necessary ingredient. Either one in too much of a quantity could be deadly, but in fact, you need them if you want anything to be edible. So in the U.S., the most responsible outlets are doing a couple of things. One is they're trying not to use the word source ever, but trying to describe that anonymous person as much as possible. A State Department official, a White House official, a senior administration official, a congressional official, and the more specific you can get, the better. Also, this is from the days when I worked at the New York Times, we tried to describe why that person is demanding anonymity. And of course, the real threshold for using anonymous sources is that it's information the journalist cannot have, cannot provide to their readers any other way without it. And this is where, uh, as Lucy did before, sort of apologizing. I'm not going to make apologies because if you think about the biggest stories that have hit in the history of journalism, Watergate was referenced. This is the abuse of the presidency, the office of the presidency. We would not have had any of these stories without anonymous sourcing. Edward Snowden at the beginning, the uh, NSA wiretapping, just pick your topic, Partygate, any of these things that come out, small, bigger, but really the most significant stories do start out often always with anonymous sources. So then when you're doing um, what you can to describe as much as possible uh, who this official is for your readers and why you're granting them anonymity, the next step in that is really to be laying out and setting some rules, some parameters, where you don't allow an anonymous source to just go out there and say pejorative stuff. If you're going to criticize someone harshly, if you're going to go after the reputation, you need to put your name with that. Otherwise, as a simple standard, and this may come to the individual journalists, we just won't let you do that hiding behind us as a mask for what may be especially, you know, ad hominem attacks in that kind of a way. You just have to set those standards for yourself. But in the U.S., as everywhere else, there are outlets that, you know, have no rules whatsoever. Donald Trump, remember, back in the day was known for calling into the New York Post and he had a, he had a pseudonym. He had his own, you know, masked name where he would talk about himself in the third person, you know, not just granted anonymity, but, but granted, you know, a fake name. So there, and, and you get other kinds of jokes that come up where people make up names of sources or whatever. So what we need to keep in mind, of course, is that the whole goal here and why do we source stories in the first place is to raise credibility with our readers. They want to know where the story is coming from. They want to know where the information is coming from. It's up to them also to judge how credible the journalist and the outlet are. But if you're using phrasing and anonymous sources, and that undermines the credibility of your report, then obviously don't do it. It's yeah. defeating the purpose, right? And that's the tension that we're getting into. And I suppose that's the, the, the key point, isn't it, Lucy? The, um, the point that David's making. If, for instance, there is a cabinet split on a question of policy, uh, cabinet ministers aren't going to say publicly on the records that they're not happy about it, but actually a ring round of the cabinet, which gets a sense of where they are and why they were getting, maybe it seems to be a big one at the moment on wind farms. Some of them have come out publicly and others have uh, done it privately. That is materially different to a cabinet source saying, uh, Rishi Sunak's out of touch, Tory Toff is too rich and he should be sacked. Because you clearly know that person probably wants their job. Has an agenda, absolutely. Yeah. For me, I think something that has slightly um, poisoned the well is the difference between um, when you're writing something for a newspaper or saying it on air for a radio station where you think very carefully about it and social media, which has a sort of slightly more informal feel to it. And there's such a frenzy for journalists to build big followings and to be the first to report things. I remember a really good example in the general election in 2019 where some oh, of the yeah. biggest broadcasters... BBC, ITV, others collectively with millions of followers tweeted out a source saying that Matt Hancock, uh, then the uh, health secretary, had been punched by a Labour thug. That was his aide, I think. 
wasn't it his aide? Had been an aide, but an unnamed source yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, close to Hancock yeah. claimed, claimed that that had happened. And it was tweeted out by some really senior broadcasters. And it essentially hadn't happened. It had been some sort of crossword, not even, you know, altercation would yeah. be going too far or confrontation even would be would be pushing it. And it was just an example when a source was taken at face value. And I think that kind of thing can really undermine it. But I do think it's more common on Twitter and social media for people to play a bit far, far more fast and hard with the rules. Because they're chasing, because other people are doing it and they're chasing the retweets and all that. Um, David, I wanted to ask you, somebody's asked, um, somebody, uh, <laughs> somebody anonymously is texting, is there a difference between off the record and on background when someone is talking to a journalist? And how are um, Chatham House rules different? Again, in my senses, there's a bit of a difference between British and American approaches to this. Uh, and there definitely is, and between the, the EU and the US. So between the, for the um, Brussels, I had to sort of reverse everything. It's kind of going, you know, wearing your clothes inside out. Um, here in Brussels, if it's off the record, it's material that you can use not for attribution to a name, but you can quote a person. Usually there's an agreement on the terms senior EU official or EU diplomat. In the U.S., it's the reverse. So on background would be something you could use and quote someone without attributing it to their name. But off the record is really off. You don't put that material into your story unless you've gotten it other other places, whereas that's what on background means in the EU. Now, Chatham House refers, I think, obviously, you have Chatham House there, you know, the yeah. original. It, it refers to events where the discussion that's taking place under Chatham House rules means we're not identifying the speakers who are involved. So sometimes that's used interchangeably with the not for attribution concept, but it's a little bit different in the sense that it's almost applying to a whole group because the entire event is being done in this way so that people can speak freely and are, you know, then you have a challenge, of course, where sometimes the things that people are saying reveals them to be, you know, at least partially reveals their identity, their nationality, their uh, profession. And there you have to be really careful because it is a dicey game to make sure that you're not identifying someone, uh, even if you're not using their name. That's, that's that distinction between off the record and on background between sort of essentially America and Europe, I think is really interesting because I always take the view that ever off the record just means I'm not going to name you. But if you don't want me to do anything with this information, don't tell me. Unless it's sort of a security thing and you know, or they're, they're correcting you know, a point of fact. But most of the time, if, if a politician does, or somebody who works in politics doesn't want something reported, don't say it to a journalist. Don't say it. Yeah. That's right. If you don't want it reported, don't say it. But also what you're describing is more the European way, and it shows that even after Brexit, the UK is more European. Than <laughs> Steady on, David. That's the sort of thing that's going to get us in real trouble. Sources, sources close to Times Radio distance themselves from David. Um, uh, my favourite, Lucy, which we haven't touched on, we haven't really got very much time, is the Westminster Watcher or Westminster Wag, which is almost certainly just a journalist or somebody in the office said something funny and they thought that will do. It's 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 appalling. It is it is the last resort, the last redoubt of the desperate hack. Westminster wag. It it does tend to mean you've been in the office and your colleague sitting next to you said something funny that you either can't resist putting in because it's a genuinely good gag, or that you've you've tried even the all the usual suspects, the gobbiest <laughs> MPs, and no one will touch a subject. So uh, yeah, my favourite my favourite Westminster wag story was this is years and years and years and years ago. Um, there was a story that I think an MP was going out with somebody who worked in the uh, House of Commons canteen. It was around the time that Love Actually had come out. And uh, so they'd seen the parallels with Martin McCutcheon and Hugh Grant. And it quoted, one Westminster wag said, uh, we're all calling her Martin McCutlery. 
<laughs> it's just so, a. It's a terrible joke, and b. That just that's just. I mean, I assume it's either the journalists themselves or someone sitting next to them. Uh, but the fact they felt it needed attribution in some way to elevate it uh, really amused me. Um, listen, David, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you for explaining. I feel like I've finally got my head now around the American rules and, uh, right. uh, and how they compare to uh, Britain. That's David uh, Herzenhorn there, chief Brussels correspondent of Politico, former Washington correspondent of the New York Times, who's. Um, I like that idea as well of how to turn your clothes inside out, although that's that's partly what gets so many people into trouble in Westminster. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.